Hey, 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 welcome to another version of the Pastor Duke podcast coming to you from South Carolina, where I'm going to be moving to later this year. We don't know exactly where and we don't know exactly when, but we're trusting Jesus about that. Today, I have a blessing for you. We have a missionary. I think God's heroes are missionaries. God had one son. His name was Jesus. And he was a missionary to planet Earth. And we have with you today missionary Jay Abish uh, from Rochester area? Originally, yes, from Rochester. And then a missionary to Quebec area in Canada, which I think is uh, one of the hardest mission fields in the, the New Worlds, North or South America. And also we have with us Larry DeNovo. We had done a, a couple podcasts with Pastor Larry. So he's going to jump in here with us a bit. But I'm moved by m- any missionary story that people will surrender their life, go to a, a field, learn a new language, learn a new culture, and just give everything they have to try to get the gospel into the hearts of people who are so different from us. And we have uh, Jay with us today. He's, he's married to a lovely uh, gal, Jay and Lynn Medham at Word of Life Fellowship, uh, at pastors' conferences they would have back in the years. They just showed up and met them. I think you and Larry knew each other uh, prior to that. And so I think the DeNovos introduced us to the Abishes. And uh, we clicked with them right away and uh, were friends for a number of years. And just in the last uh, six months since our South Carolina connection, I'm beginning to find out where this guy really came from. And it's a riveting story, and I want to share it with uh, our audience. So, uh, Jay, thanks for being with us today. Kind of introduce yourself a little bit more, uh, your background, how you came to Christ. And uh, Pastor Larry and I will jump in with uh, specific questions if you're skipping over something we think is important. (laughs) Well, I guess... If we want to start at the beginning, I was born uh, February 15th, 1954. Makes you, what, 29 uh, years old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah, no, my father was a, a Korean War vet, and he was a drummer for the L.A. Orchestra in California, where he met my mother, who was a dancer on stage uh, in L.A. She wanted to get into the show business and stuff, and they met, they fell in love, and... Um, they were married, moved back to Rochester before I was born. And um, unfortunately, when I was born, after about three months, my father came in and walked in on her. She was in the arms of her high school sweetheart. And uh, he was very brokenhearted. And he took me and put me on a plane. And uh, they, we both went down to Texas and he just cried on my Aunt Grace's shoulder, that was my mother's oldest sister, and uh, told her what had happened. And my Aunt Grace called my mom and said, listen, you need to make a go of your marriage. You've got a son here. You've got responsibilities. And so at first, from what my Aunt Grace said, my mother didn't want to come. Um, I don't really think she wanted a child that would cramp the lifestyle that she really wanted but eventually she did come down, but uh, she and my dad could never reconcile. So they were divorced, and um, she decided that she wanted to keep me, and she wanted to take care of me. You're just a baby at this time, is that correct? Yep, yeah, three months old, three, six months maybe at the most. And so my father um, moved back to the Detroit area where he was originally from, 
And I never heard from him again. I never, uh, never had contact from him. Um, after he passed away, he passed away when he was 51 years old, and I got notice from that. He was uh, in San Diego, and uh, he's buried at the Riverside Marine Cemetery in San Diego. But, you know, never, but, never heard from him. But, you know, for our listeners, you know, just let that sink in, you know, never knew his dad and that's kind of a vogue in the world that we're in today Uh, men walk away from responsibilities and uh, and uh, it uh, creates a lot of damage uh, both to the the mother to the child and um, so (laughs) this is just getting started so carry on well we were in texas until the time i was about five years old and um, you know in my vaguest memories i remember that uh if my aunt grace wasn't taking care of me another lady was taking care of me and my mom i think she was renting a room from that lady for a while and then we had our own little house but she had a lot of different boyfriends she went out a lot and uh i remember when we moved back to rochester um I remember being left alone when uh, when I was young, maybe six, seven years old. My grandmother's apartment was in front of our apartment, so my mom probably thought I'd be all right. But I knew how to make peanut butter jelly sandwiches. I knew how to take care of myself, you know, somewhat. But um, again, uh, she had a lot of different boyfriends. She always had some different different guy and you know, I never knew really as a child what was going on at the time, but I kind of know now, uh, thinking back to that. And we, we lived in the inner city of Rochester, and we were poor at the time. I remember standing in line for government food with my grandmother. And uh, another thing I remember is our apartments were infested with rats and mice. And uh, one of my responsibilities was to uh, check the rat traps and stuff. And <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was just something, <laughs> you know, just... It Yikes. Was, yeah, it wasn't good. Um, my mom got a job finally at RT French Company at number one Mustard Street, you know, French's Mustard. And uh, she was a secretary there, and, and she started to do well. And then she, she remarried when I was eight years old. And that was her third husband. What I didn't know is she was married for three months before she met my dad, the guy was a tennis pro out in California, but he would beat her up, and he was uh, physically abusive. So she, she was only in that relationship for three months, and then she met my my dad, and of course, you know, they split up. And now she remarried uh, when I was eight years old, and that marriage lasted for nine years. And um, my stepfather was a Jewish man, and he had some serious problems. He was uh, raised up in the Jewish orphanage. Um, his mother didn't want him around because, uh, <laughs> this is weird, but she was having an incestuous relationship with his brother. And um, so this guy grew up knowing that and just dealing with a lot of different issues in his life. He had a very perverted view of women. And... Uh, I can say that as I was growing up, there was always pornography around. Um, it was uh, it was pretty bad. Um, materially, we were doing well. You know, we had a house in the suburbs. We had a boat. We had a built-in pool, 
three cars in the driveway, but I'll say that those years were marked by jealousy, envy, arguments, verbal and mental abuse. My mother was a beautiful woman. He was insanely jealous um, of her. She was, he was always afraid that uh, she would be cheating on him, and they would start arguments, and he became very oppressive. He would take her pay, give her 25 cents a week or, or a day, excuse me, for, for coffee. She had to make her own clothes because he wouldn't let her buy clothes a lot of times. Um, he's very concerned for finances, and uh, things went from bad to worse, that, you know, and they just would always get into fights, and my mother would come to me and say, you know, I want to I wanna leave him, and I would say, no, stay with him because, you know, as a kid, you want a family. You know, you, you don't. I didn't know how bad things were getting, but I just wanted that family. And uh, I can remember my mom coming in sometimes after they would have a fight and she would uh, take a coat hanger and she would whip me and swear at me and um, accuse me of making her stay with him. And um, finally, things got physical. Um, And just... This date sticks in my mind because it was December 19th, 1971 at 4 a.m. in the morning that my mom told her husband she wanted a divorce. And uh, he was a hunter and a marksman. He had shotguns and handguns. And, you know, in in his rage, he grabbed the handgun that was on the dresser and he was going to shoot us. And... Um, my mother screamed out. My, my bedroom was down the hall from there as I was running down to help my mom, and he had the gun pointed at me. He said, I'm going to shoot you first. And uh, my mom grabbed his arm and uh, pulled his arm toward her, and as he was turning, he smacked her in the side of the head with the butt of the gun. He knocked her out, and uh, she fell to the ground, and I was in the room, and he started kind of coming to his senses, understanding the drama that was unfolding, you know, how bad it could get. And I said, listen, you need to take her to the hospital. Give me that gun right now. And uh, it was a thirty-eight pistol. He gave it to me. You were about 16, 17. 17 years old. I was 17 years old. And uh, he gave me the gun. I got the clip out. There were three three bullets in it. And uh, all I could think of was he was going to probably shoot us and then commit suicide or something. But... um, you know, I will say this. It was at that time that I became an atheist, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I was raised Catholic, and, um, you know, he was Jewish, so I couldn't go to Catholic church. But I would say my Catholic prayers for my dad and mom. I would say my Our Fathers and Hail Marys and hope that someday that their relationship would be healed and that there would be this happy family and that we would live happily ever after. And that didn't happen. And when that didn't happen, I just said to myself, you know what? There's no, there is no God. There's no God. And uh, we had to leave. You know, he kind of cleaned up his act a little bit. They went to a counselor and uh, he started to go back to his old ways. And my mom, she was, she was kind of a, rebel- a rebellious woman anyway. And we just had to go and live with my aunt and uncle. And I had to change high schools in my senior year. 
Well, that's, well, that's always a comforting for a yeah. teenager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but once we left, um, he knew where I worked. And my mom didn't want anything from him. All she wanted was $2,000 for a car. She, he could keep the house and whatever, you know. She didn't want anything from him because he was just, he was violent. He was unstable. He knew where I worked, and he would come into Star Market there in Rochester, and he would come in, and he would say, I'm going to kill your mom, and you'll read about her in the newspaper tomorrow. And he did that on several occasions. And Or he'd come in and say, I'll be waiting for you when you get off work tonight. And um, that went on for about two months. And then, lo and behold, he comes into the store with his new girlfriend. Very, uh, very uh, pretty young lady, much younger than him, and he acted as if nothing had ever happened. And then, a few months later, his girlfriend comes into the store to tell me that he had a stroke, and he was in the hospital, and he was paralyzed on his right side, and he couldn't speak. Well... You know, I, I went to the hospital to visit him. And, um, you know, I just, I felt bad for him, you know. And he wound up um, being paralyzed for the rest of his life. He was at St. John's home in Rochester, New York. And he was in a wheelchair for over 40 years before he passed away. But it was during this time, this crucial time when I was 17 and everything was just unfolding like this. Everything was breaking down. It was during this time that I remember someone brought the gospel to me at Star Market. It was this guy. His name was Red Shattuck. He worked for A.J. Altman and Sons, uh, which was a specialty foods provider for Star Markets. And we used to call him the Jeek, and that was short for Jesus Freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he would come in, he, he would talk about God's love, and, you know, he would, t- he would pass out tracks and stuff. And, you know, I was just so bitter and full of hate for God or the thought of God on the Bible. I just said, Red, I don't believe in God. And he would just say, God loves you. I said, you know what I think of God? And I would spit on the ground. I said, there. I don't believe God. What's God going to do? You know, and I would mock the name of Jesus, and um, he would just say, don't do that. God loves you. God wants to save you. I said, I said, Red, there's no God. You know, it's just, you know, I was just very bitter. And um, I can just remember from the period of the age of 17 to the age of 22 years old, uh, I just became very depressed no moral restraints in my life, no God, of course. So, you know, I went downhill very rapidly. But one thing that I did do, miracle of miracles, after about a year, I went to college. I went to a two-year college. I went to Finger Lakes Community College. I love the outdoors, so I got an AAS degree in natural resources conservation. I graduated with high honor. Graduated in 1975. And my dream was to 
work for the DEC in New York State to build stream improvement structures for improving trout population in New York State. That was what I wanted to do or you know, become a park ranger or something like that. But when I graduated, Civil Service of New York State went on strike and all the fish and wildlife exams for the state were canceled for two years. Also, when I was in college... Maybe God redirecting well, behind your back. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Without your permission. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. Oh, my and goodness. The, in, my, in my second year, I did a practicum. I worked at the Hunter Check Stations in uh, North Tonawanda and uh, another area of, of New York where there was duck hunting and goose hunting, and I worked there. And the, the men that headed those Hunter Check Stations up who worked for the DEC we're supposed to record the hours that the college students worked. So I did that practicum, and I was, I, I was just really working a lot and, and really working hard in school. And all of that was never recorded with the DEC. They had no record of it whatsoever. So not only were the fish and wildlife exams canceled, but when I contacted the, the DEC the practicum hours weren't ever recorded. And then besides that, I had three big hits. The girl that I thought I was going to marry broke up with me. She was cheating on me. Yeah, I know about that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then I was working for Josh Gardens. They were agriculture. So they didn't have to take out for taxes for me because they were agricultural. So I didn't know that. So at the end of the year, I owed $950 in taxes, and I didn't have that kind of money. So I had to sell my car to pay for it. And then also at that time, I was lifting weights, and uh, all of a sudden the weights come crashing down on me. I had an electric shock kind of in my right arm, and I didn't know what was going on. Well, I had to go to the chiropractor, and after six months of treatment, $1,500, you know, I had a, a thin disc in my neck which was affecting a nerve, and um, I can honestly say that I probably had chronic pain in my neck, which lasted for over 30 years. It's much better now. Uh, I deal with, with some of it, but it's, 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 it's doing all right. But all those things hitting me at the same time brought me into greater bouts of depression and serious thoughts of suicide. And... Um, you know, I had this thinking at that time, and I don't know why, but I thought, you know what, if I killed myself, I would just go into the great force of the universe and be recycled and reincarnated or something. And I never was into New Age or anything like that, but that's, that's how I thought. I don't know why, but that's, what I, that's how I thought. And, um, but it was at that time that um, I started to think about life you know what is what is the meaning of life is there a god is there is there anything out there well you know or do you just die and just that's it you go into the ground and during that time god started to bring more people in my life to share the gospel with me i was working at josh gardens at the time and uh, there was a young lady by the name of Ruthie who was hired on. She was a born-again Christian. She was from the Jesus movement 
that started out in California, and she had moved back to Rochester. Kind of a female jeek, huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, a female jeek. Man, we, we mocked her to scorn, and uh, we, we teased her and, and just kind of mistreated her. But she was, she was a soldier. She was a real soldier. And um, I can remember at the time, I, I was going to the Catholic Church down the road from where my apartment was, and I would just sit there, and i just think, look at Christ on the cross, the statue there, and I'd say, why did he die? Whoa, I don't understand any of this. And I was talking to Ruthie at work one time, and she said, Jay, don't you know Jesus is not dead? He's risen. He's alive. Where are his bones, Jay? Where are his remains? And that struck me. It's like, it's true. Jesus doesn't have any remains. He's not in the grave. What happened? She invited me to church, and I went with a young lady who was a mutual friend because her boyfriend would never go with her. And when we got to this special meeting that they were having at the church for young people, it was, a, it was a Taekwondo demonstration. The preacher knew Taekwondo, and he, um, he was going to preach afterwards, and they were going to have a pizza party for the young people. And I thought, okay, we'll go for the pizza. If they start preaching, I'm going to leave. So we pull up to this bank and get in the parking lot, and there's a huge Church of Christ next door. And I said to the young lady that I was with, I said, yeah, here's the church over here. She said, no, it's not here. And I said, well, where is it? She said, it's in the basement of the bank. I said, what <laughs> what, what kind of people meet in the basement of a bank? What are you bringing me to here? What is this with Ruthie? Some kind I of a cult. I don't understand all this, yeah. <laughs> so when, when we got down there, the place was packed, and they had to put a seat in between the two areas of seats for me because I was like the last guy there. So the guy that was speaking put on a demonstration, and lo and behold, he uses me uh, as uh, to help him with his demonstration. So after that, I, I didn't want to get up and leave when he started preaching. Well, his message was on evolution versus creation. I didn't know this at the time, but he was kind of the head of the uh, Rochester chapter for Institute of Creation Research. And being kind of fresh out of college, you know, I thought I knew all the answers, and it kind of affirmed my atheism coming out of college. But he posed some questions and gave some information that I didn't have an answer to. And after that evening, when I was in this other young lady's car, and she was dropping me back off to my apartment, she said, Jay, what did you think of the service? And I said to her, I said, I think they have the truth. And she said, no. Don't you become one of those born-again people. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I think they have the truth. So she dropped me off, and that young lady, Ruthie, quit Josh Gardens, 
And she got a job down the street working at Perkins Restaurant. And where she met Lynn, who was going to eventually be my wife, but I had no idea of who Lynn was at that time. But Ruthie started working at Perkins. Sounds to me like God. Sounds to me like God's setting you up. Yeah, setting me up. (laughs) Ruthie uh, started witnessing the Lynn. Well, so here's what happened. Two weeks after Ruthie quits, this guy Dave starts working at Josh Gardens. I did not like Dave. He was hippie. He drove a Carmen Ghia. He just got back from Colorado where he had lived for a few years. And he just, there's just something about him I just didn't like. And we were talking one time, and I just knew this guy doesn't swear. And I asked him, I said, you don't swear, do you? He said, no, I think you can get things said without swearing. I said, are you a born-again Christian? He said, yeah. How did you know? (laughs) I said, I swore. And I said, we just got rid of one of those people. Well, come to find out, he was a saved Jew, raised up in a Jewish home, ran away when he was 15, rode the rails, wound up out in Colorado, he got saved at Ed Nelson's church. I think it was South Sheridan Baptist Church out in Colorado, somewhere out there, and uh, came back to Rochester. And, uh, you know, it was during that time that we started talking about God, the world, things like that. Now, this is an interesting point. I had an apartment I rented from the Josh's. So my apartment was on the property of Josh Garden. So I could, you know, I got out of bed and I'd roll out of bed and roll into work kind of. But I would wake up to the WHAM newscast every morning. And I can remember waking up one morning to a newscast that said that China had a 200 million man army. Now this is back in the, back in the 70s. And I thought, wow, that's almost the population of the United States of America, 200 million man army. Two days after that, me, this guy Dave, and a couple of other workers of Josh Gardens were in the largest greenhouse, and we were all alone. We were working, and we started talking about the end of the world. And we all thought, oh, okay, what, is, what do you think the end of the world is going to be? I asked this girl. She said, it's going to be starvation. And I asked another guy. I said, what do you think the end of the world is going to be? He said, nuclear holocaust. So I turned to this guy Dave, and I said, okay, Mr. Bible, <laughs> what does the Bible say the end of the world's going to be like? Well, he knew his Bible, and he started quoting Scripture. And then he talked about the river Euphrates being dried up and a 200-million-man army crossing over. I said, wait a minute. What do you mean 200-million-man army? You know, the kings of the east. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, who is the kings of the east? He said, I don't know, probably the Orient, probably China. And so I just heard on the news that China has a 200 million man army. So he looks up out of the greenhouse into the sky. He said, Jay, you better repent because the Lord Jesus is coming soon. And that, I, I, I just, I had some other questions. Pulled out the R word on you, huh? Yeah. Repent. Uh, yeah. It's not I, popular I, today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's still powerful, though. Yeah. So I had some other questions about the Bible. 
that he was able to answer me. And one of those questions was, listen, if Cain married his sister, why didn't they have retarded children or, you know, handicapped children or whatever? He just said, listen, it was different back then. There wasn't any genetic breakdown. Adam and Eve were the first. So when breakdown would have come, that's when in the Mosaic Law, God forbade, forbade, you know, intermarriage between close relatives. And that was just that common sense answer said, ah, that makes sense. The next day, I went to um, a bookstore, and there was this little old lady working in the bookstore, and I came in. You know, I was one of these black leather jacket, motorcycle, ripped jean, combat boot type guy, T-shirt. Came into the store. <laughs> poor little lady. She she got wide-eyed. She thought I was probably coming in there to rob her or something. I said, I want to buy a Bible. And she just looked very surprised, and she said, you? You want a Bible? I said, yeah. I want a Bible, and I want the one that has the these and the thous in it. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, you want the King James Bible? I said, if that's the one with the these and thous, that's the one I want. I don't know why I said that. I just That's what I said. So I got a Bible, and I started reading, and that was... In November of 1976, and I can remember, I was reading the Bible, I was reading in Romans about how Christ died for me, and I remember the message that I had heard, you know, and um, I think it was after watching the movie Ben-Hur, that I got on my living room floor in November 1976 and I asked the Lord Jesus to save me. And, um, you know, I got up and I guess the first thing that really happened the next day is, and everybody knew, noticed, you know, I didn't swear anymore. <laughs> and... I love it. I love you know, it. I love I, it. I, I was still I was still going to some of the places. Now I'll give you an example. I was going to this place called Heine's Tavern in Rochester. It was <laughs> in the inner city. And it was there were some bad dudes that hung out there. As a matter of fact, I remember witnessing to one of my old friends. I knew him from third grade. His name was Ron. He was a member of the Hells Angels. And I remember witnessing to him about the Lord Jesus Christ, drinking a beer, telling, uh, talking to him about the Lord. And I, 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 you know, I just remember that. And, and then I remember coming out of places like that and just saying, you know what? I think maybe it would be better to go to the Friday night Bible study that the church has that I had gone to and start learning the Bible instead of going to the bars and uh, that's what I started to do. And I started growing in the Lord. And I made a covenant with God. I said, I'm going to read the Bible through. Because I, I had al always mocked the Bible. And always said, ah, there's a lot of contradictions. They don't know what they're talking about, you know, and this and that. And one girl one time, this is even before I saved, asked me, if, have you ever read the Bible? And I said, no. 
And she just said, well, how do you know what you're talking about then? Uh, you know, that kind of stuck with me. So I said, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. So I started reading the Bible through, and just it just amazed me. The, 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 the Word of God, I have to say, amazed me, especially prophecy. And um, the, precision, the precision of prophecy was, was unbelievable. And I just thought, you know, this book is really something special. Well, that was in 1976, and then, you know, Ruthie, <laughs> she was working on, on Lynn. Lynn had just got back from France. She spent a year in France. She was a French major at Nazareth College, and um, she, had, she was corresponding with three different guys at the time, and she was distraught. She didn't know what to do, and so this girl, Ruthie, told her, I've got the perfect guy for you. His name is Jay Abish. He comes to our church. Why don't you come to church and meet him? But she was witnessing to her, you know, also. So, so Lynn came to church in uh, September of 77, and she got saved. Kind of coming to meet you and kind of yeah, well, you know experience what? a new kind I mean, of church. Yeah, she was, she was cute. And I thought, you know, I thought, man, she's... The way she dressed and the way she looked, I thought, man, this girl is rich. She's way out of my class. And uh, so you noticed she wasn't ugly, huh? No, no, you she picked wasn't up on ugly. that. No, she was a beautiful girl, and she she had a beautiful spirit about her too. And uh, but then she would she would call me because her car broke down, and she wanted to be picked up to go to Bible study. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come pick you up. And so I went to pick her up, and she lived on Carter Street. And Carter Street's in the inner city of Rochester. It wasn't a rich neighborhood. I said, hey, she's not rich. She just looks rich. <laughs> and um, so we started dating in December of 77. And then we dated for a couple of weeks, and then she went to South America, to Bogota, Colombia, to visit a friend of hers from college, and she stayed with her friend for two weeks in Colombia. And when she got back a week later, I asked her to marry me, and we were married six months later, and we've been married for 44 years now, and we've got four children, three girls and a boy, they're all grown up, and um, when we first got married, I was working at Josh Garden still, but then I changed jobs. I got a job as, um, the, eventually I became the lead man of the grounds crew at Rochester General Hospital, and I worked there for about four or five years, and uh, we, you know, we were doing all right. And the Lord was really working in my heart. And uh, I remember the pastor asking me to start doing some Bible studies with, uh, with the teens at the church. And it was an independent Baptist church. It was a Bible-believing church. And then in um, 1982, he asked me if I wanted to come on full-time as an associate and as a youth pastor 
And um, so you were kind of doing your training in the trenches, like Pastor Larry, yeah, did, and uh, just reading and just yep. learning all you can on the side. Yeah, and I, you know what, I was during that time. And I, I appreciate that question because during that time, there was a large church on the other side of the city, uh, First Bible Baptist Church. They had a great bookstore. And I would go to conferences there, and I'd always be in the bookstore. And now, rather than spending half my paycheck on booze at the bars, <laughs> I was spending half my paycheck on theological books and filling my, my library up with, with books and studying on my own and reading you know, the Bible. And I just, I just couldn't get enough of it. And uh, I guess you know, the pastor saw that, and he thought, you know, this guy, he could be trained and be a good associate. Did you feel uh, like a calling uh, along the way, or was it just kind of developing? You wanted more, more, more. Obviously, you were going deeper. I don't know if I could. You know, God never spoke to me in any kind of audible voice or anything like that. But I couldn't get enough of the Word of God, and I and I and I wanted to help people. I wanted to bring people to Christ. So, you know, the pastor saw that, and he thought you know, maybe Jay would like to come on staff full-time. And the church was doing well. And um, so not really consulting with Lynn as I should have because she was kind of reticent to do that. But we did it anyway because we had the three girls at the time and when I went on staff, I took a 50% cut in pay. That sounds like uh, a lot of Baptist preachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at the time, there was that real zeal that the Lord's coming back soon. The Lord's coming back soon. So my pastor said, no savings account, no retirement accounts. I mean, he just don't even bother uh, going, given to Social Security because... Yeah, we all withdrew in those days. Yeah, yeah. the Lord's going to come back before... You know, my oldest daughter's in kindergarten. <laughs> well, my oldest daughter's going to be 43 years old, and we have grandchildren in elementary school, so that didn't pan out. But uh, I became the, uh, the youth pastor, the associate pastor, and then in 1987, another associate left, and I had to, to become the principal of our Christian school, and I also taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And I was totally unprepared for that. And unfortunately, it was at this time that problems started to surface in our church. The school became a drain financially for the church. And a lot of our folks were inner city people, and they really couldn't afford the tuition. And so... You know, I was in a position of now playing the heavy as the school principal. I had to come after them for tuition payments, back tuition payments. And, you know, they saw me originally as the youth pastor and, and someone who was very uh, caring and kind and uplifting for their children and stuff. And now I had to play the heavy and, and say, listen, you know, you, you've got to, if we're going to pay our teachers, we're going to have to have tuition. And that created a lot of discontentment uh, among people and uh, even among the teachers. They saw what was going on. And unfortunately, at this time, 
some serious problems started to become evident in the pastor's life, and that began to affect the ministry. And I don't know if I can go into all the details, but I will tell you that, you know, he started smoking, and he was smoking at the church, and he was trying to hide it, but we would come in, we'd always smell smoke, and when he was confronted about it, he lied. And you know, it wasn't so much the cigarettes, because looking back, you know, we talked about it with the deacons and stuff. That could have been taken, you know, that could have, we could have prayed through with him and and have seen a victory, but the fact that he tried to cover it. So that was going on, and with the whole thing with the school. Yeah, I'd like to just interject yeah. here, and we'll pick right up there because it's a, a, an engaging story to me. But I, as I got to know you more and find out the dysfunction that you emerged from as your childhood, which we just heard, is just amazing how God can redeem uh, people out of that mess and change it and uh, the dysfunction of your early childhood, and then you become a really great husband, a really great dad, and now a grandpa uh, is amazing. But in addition to the dysfunction of your uh, childhood now, um, when I came to New York State uh, in my early days planting a church, there was a, a fellowship of, of pastors from around the state, and I knew some of these people, and I'm kind of in it as well. But I'm in it as a pastor. I can kind of stay out of it. I'm independent. And I had friends within that group that were yeah. really fantastic and lifetime friends. Yeah. But there was some major dysfunction going on, some real extremes. We won't go into that. That's the purpose of this podcast. The purpose is that there are dysfunctions in homes. And that's the part we really know about. There's also dysfunction in religious circles and yeah. in, in churches. And that's what you're going on. What really amazes me is that you were a survivor as a child and as a young man, and you came through, you processed through that. You didn't get bitter. You got better. You didn't let people mess you up about God. You let God straighten you out about people. And now here you are serving up to your neck, working probably 60, 70 hours a week in that, at that time yeah. frame, yeah. which was not uncommon for associate uh, right. pastors and Baptist churches in those days, getting about probably one half, one third to one half of the salary that you could have gotten anywhere else. And so even out of that, it, it's kind of like you're kind of back in it again in, in, in this, this dysfunction thing. And I don't know about any of that. I just know I did meet this really neat missionary couple from Montreal. And so you had to kind of come out of as a child, and you kind of had to emerge out of this even as a missionary. Yeah. And so I'm just uh, hats off to you, dude, yeah. for, for, you know, not choking somebody out uh, <laughs> along the way. So I just wanted to inject that. And yeah, all Pastor, I can you say want to is jump in on a, on a comment here? Let Pastor Larry jump in because we really admire you uh, for, for being a survivor uh, in that kind of a thing. You know, when I hear your story, Jay, uh, <laughs> I see you had dysfunction on two levels. One, as a kid growing up, you know, with an absentee daddy and then a, really a, a tyrant for a stepdaddy. Um, and then you saw a dysfunction on an ecclesiastical level. Yeah. And yet, in spite of it, 
where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You know, when I met you, when you were uh, on deputation trying to raise support to go to Quebec, I never would have guessed you had a problem. <laughs> I don't know how. I know how you covered that up, but you did a great job at it. But you know what? I mean, I, but those things, you still, it still scarred you. And yeah. Yeah. this dysfunction does scar you. And and yet the grace of God was there with you. I mean, you you didn't quit the field. You went to the field and uh, you you went you took uh, uh, you did your homework and you worked hard at it. And uh, I just commend you that uh, you're an overcomer. I agree with Duke. Uh, you're a survivor. And um, you know, I praise the Lord for that. Well, guys, all I can say is I am what I am by the grace of God. And um, were it not for the grace of God, there go I. And I understand one thing. We're all sinners saved by grace. And in my lowest state of debauchery before I was saved, and in my blasphemy and my hatred for God, if God was patient and kind with me and reached out, to save me, I could, I could accord that to others because of what, what God did for me. And, and that's how I look at it. I'll, I'll pick up with, with what was going on. I'd like to just say one thing yeah. as, as you resume here in just a moment. Yeah. You just took us back to the basics. You just took us back to that model prayer Jesus gave us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass yeah. against us. And it's amazing for those who overcome and those who do get victory and those who choose not to blame shift and those who choose to get back up and do the next right thing, even though people that you leaned on let you down, you still chose to do the right thing. And you didn't let uh, the dysfunction ecclesiastically and there's much more that he's not telling you about here, folks. Let me tell you, that's yeah. not our purpose here. But I, uh, Pastor Larry and I know there was much, much more than what he's telling you about. But I, it sounds like you just went right back to the basics and, uh, and kept on. Yeah. During that time, you know, obviously there was that lack of, of transparency and honesty and, and heartfelt repentance. I, I went to him and entreated him biblically as an elder, I said, Pastor, you know what? If you were to go before the church right now and just say, you know what? Something's happened in my life and I've gone back to a bad habit. I started smoking. Pray for me. Give me the victory. And um, take a vote of confidence. You know what? Those people would forgive you. They would take a vote of confidence. And they would want you to be their pastor. And his answer blew me away. He said, that's too extreme for me. I can't do that. And I thought in my heart, boy, you're holding yourself up above a clear principle in the word of God. And that frightened me. <laughs> but that led to the division and a rupture, and the church went through a split. And I can honestly say that the same emotions that plagued me during my mother and stepfather's divorce yep. were the same emotions that I had 
when the church went through the split. Um, you know, I can also remember Faith Promise Missions conferences, and you know, I always wanted to be a giver. I didn't have much, but I gave to the point where I couldn't adequately provide for my family. We were living out of the goodie box at church. I remember one year I couldn't pay my heating bills because I didn't have any money. And I remember one time one evangelist at the church stating, you go in debt to buy a refrigerator or a stove, you can go in debt for the Lord. So I gave $500 for the missions on a line of credit. Yikes. <laughs> and, you know, at that time, $500 was like $5,000 to us, and it took me a year to get out of that one. See, that's the kind of the crazy dysfunction that was seemed to be floating around in that circle that I was part of, and I was seeing it, and I was kind of pulling out of, but you were going to wind up being a missionary. We've got about 10 minutes to wrap up to kind of gather your um, – Okay. how you want to rat pull this together. This this story is just so engaging to me. And uh, I was able as a local church pastor to just kind of kind out and do my thing and have my own friends, but you're going to have to wind up visiting these churches. And some of them were wonderful. Yeah. And yet some yeah. of them were kind of caught up in what I would call some real extremism. Yeah. And uh, you've kind of kept your eyes off of the dysfunction. Seems to me, kept your eyes on the Lord and did the next right thing, and uh, so the story unfolds. Yeah. Well, in 1991, we had a missions conference, and um, I can remember Dr. Mel Rudder preaching um, from the book of Exodus, and uh, it was at that time that I had surrendered to go to the mission field to Quebec because anytime my wife is Quebecer, her family's up there, and anytime we would go up there, we'd know that there was lots of... Um, you know, lots of need for independent Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches. So, you know, I went out of our home church originally, and there was another thing that happened. The pastor reneged on what he said the church would do for us. The first month on deputation was the first time that I had $50 left over in my checking account, and he said, I never meant for you to get a raise. Start putting all your love offerings in the offering plate, and then you'll draw a salary. And I, I just, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know how to take that. I just, it's like, wow, I, I couldn't believe that. And um, eventually, he he repented of that and uh, started to let me keep my love offerings and um, just, you know, live by faith and. I spent four years on deputation. I went over to went into over three hundred different churches, various camps, norms. Each each camp has their own heroes, and man, I can remember some. We of the could stuff. do five podcasts on this topic, but we won't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, by God's grace, we uh, we wound up in Quebec, and the people that we worked with at first, again, were very stringent and very extreme in their norms, and I'll say that our children were very hurt by the hypocrisy and, and what they saw because the lady that was working with our children, a Sunday school teacher, it was found out that she was smoking, and all the while she was condemning my wife because my wife from time to time would wear pants, you know, not at church, but, you know. So here they see this hypocrisy and 
there were injustices towards our children, and it just, I just, you know. I was I was a local church pastor down south from Montreal, and I was slightly aware of some of the insanity going on in that independent Baptist movement up there. I had other missionary friends who just stayed out of it, and yet you, that was kind of the group you came out of. And yeah. and we met you and Lynn, and you guys were so sweet, and you were enduring all this insanity, and you had a great spirit and you never even led on about the, the, the injustices that were done towards you and towards your family. But there was certainly damage being done. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I just admired you that you were able to kind of steer through that craziness and still be able to focus and try to do ministry. And, uh, it was just, it was just one of those things that uh, it, it was, it shouldn't be, but yeah. it was. And in yeah. the midst of that, you were carrying on, you know, I, I just, it's, it's a two-sided coin because I looked at those people also as soldiers. They had come over from, from Africa. They were missionaries in Africa, and they planted 11 churches. They did plant a good church in um, Rossard, Quebec. Uh, they, were, they were, you know, and the woman, she was excellent for teaching me language. I mean, I, she couldn't have done a better job. And then when we, when we left there, when I graduated from language school, I, uh, I tried to start a work in Candiac, Quebec, and and that didn't didn't go over. It nothing nothing happened. I mean, Quebec is a field. It's it's a missionary graveyard. When we were there, seventeen missionaries came and left the field. Uh, we hung on, and uh, finally, the people that we originally worked with, he called me up one day and asked if I wanted to take over the work in Broussard because he was going into semi-retirement. So we did that, and a month later, after I took over the work, he had a quadruple heart bypass. And uh, so we were with the work for over 20 years, and uh, we left the field in 2019. The building was paid. There was savings in the bank. They had about 40 or 50 in attendance. And today I can say that there's a Quebec fella. He's preaching and teaching he has to maintain a full-time job, but he's he's doing a good job from what I understand, and people love him. So we are grateful for what the Lord did in spite of it all. Oftentimes I say, <laughs> as I blundered my way through my Christianity, God in his grace did something. You know what, I just want to thank you for sharing uh, your testimony with us. And I'm grateful in the providence of God, uh, Jay, that, you know, the Lord led us um, together, and he, as well as Pastor Duke. And I think of, um, you know, how the Lord, uh, Lord's will was accomplished in your life in spite of all the dysfunction you went through. And yet I remember that verse, you know, that the will of God will not take you or the grace of God will not keep you, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I'm thankful that now after all the life experiences you've had and we've had together to some level, yeah. now God led you down to South Carolina and I've been here for three months and we're trying to get Duke down here with his <laughs> wife. And uh, I believe that that's forthcoming in very short notice. <laughs> Yeah, we're uh, going to be heading to Florida here uh, in two days, four months in Florida, and we may sign on the line to build a house uh, right here near Pastor Larry and Marianne, been lifetime friends, and it's about uh, 30 minutes down to your place, I think, Jay. So it looks like we're going to be doing 
the rest of our lives together, trying to make a difference and advance God's kingdom. But uh, I saw you from year to year at the conferences, and I, I knew about you, and I knew you were in the midst of all that craziness that was going on in that circle of churches up there. And, and praise God, there were some guys that pulled out of that, and they're doing good. And you kind of yeah. uh, survived that. You kind of pulled out, and you were condemned for that and criticized and called a liberal because your wife would wear pants. And, oh, just incredible, just an insanity. It's embarrassing, literally embarrassing to me as a, as an independent Baptist preacher, uh, kind of just down south a bit. But in the midst of all, you kept your eyes on the Lord. You kept your hand on the plow. You kept loving you, uh, the love of your life. You raised up uh, some wonderful children. And, uh, and you left behind people who, who knew Jesus as Savior. You left behind a church that was functioning in a hard, hard place. And now this season of your life, I know you're in a, in a solid church here. You're an adult Bible class teacher here. And I think uh, a lot of people need to hear this testimony. I was riveted by it. I know our, our people will encourage uh, our listeners to uh, uh and uh, share this with people appropriately uh, that are in the midst of dysfunction and never give up on people. And that little, that little boy across the way whose family's totally dysfunctional, pick him up, take him to Sunday school, uh, show the love of Jesus to people. But Jay, this has been a, a real uh, blessing for me. I, I knew about 70% of what you shared today, about 25% of it was new to me, but it was a blessing. Do you have a, a final thought for us as we, we wrap up here today? You know, I, I know that you mentioned you know, I didn't really have anybody to go to, but, you know, I would take everything to the Lord. And the Word of God and prayer was my ultimate um, refuge. Um, God was my refuge. And, you know, He is the one who has brought me through. And uh, I just praise God today, every day, for what he's done in my life and uh, where we're at in our lives and uh, what he's brought me through. And I, I, he's faithful. He's very faithful. And I appreciate what, what God has done. Well, that was a huge point that we had forgotten about. Uh, Pastor Larry and I were talking about this um, before you came today, that we were blessed to have my pastor, Jim Standridge, as, as our go-to guy. And, and Pastor Larry called him kind of the apostolic guy. He was just a giant in our lives. We had him to go to. Uh, I also have uh, Wayne Gwynn as a mentor. I've always had people to go to. And Larry had uh, Pastor Standridge. He had me, and not that I'm the greatest mentor in the world, but then we were thinking about you, Jay, and uh, you didn't have that. And yet, um, I guess Jesus himself was sufficient. And uh, he, uh, he was at your side, and he healed you and turned you into a a great servant in the local church, uh, turned you into a high school principal, <laughs> turned you into a missionary and a daddy, a grandpa. And uh, here we are uh, all these years down the road and the best is yet to come. Hey, uh, podcast audience, thanks for tuning in again. Trust that you might like, share, subscribe, inscribe, describe, all that kind of stuff. Help us get the gospel to the ends of earth. Aren't you glad for missionaries? Somebody told you about Jesus, and now you go be a missionary and tell somebody else. God bless for now. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>